glad to see you. The ice storm ruined my time with you. So it's been one month since I have been here. It feels crazy. I was looking at all of the stuff that we have to go over and I realized there is so much that I missed with you all. And so I'm going to kind of do go over a bit of things. I love a good recap. Um, and the stories, we kind of missed one of my favorite stories in all of scripture, and that won't, I cannot stand for that. And so we're going to go back and do a little bit of that. Um, but just as a reminder, we've got, I love questions. And so if you've had some questions over the weeks, because it's been a month, then I would love to entertain some. I know I've got one here that I don't believe was covered. Um, and so kind of bring those questions because we're really reaching the end of 2 Samuel. Pretty much after today, the last few chapters of 2 Samuel are non-chronological. And so they kind of close things up with a bit of poetry and they touch on a few random bits of David's story. But we really are done after today with what would be considered kind of the main narrative portion of David's life. We'll still discuss David, um, but I want to make sure that we deal a bit with the character of this, of the, of David in particular, but the way in which he navigated some of the messiness of his court troubles um, that he's had over the last few weeks and chapters that we've been studying. So let's have a prayer and we will jump right on in and be thinking of your questions because it's super helpful to know what you're interested in and what you're wondering about as we move forward. So the Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we come to you today with grateful hearts. We are grateful for the gift of life for this beautiful day and for giving us a chance to be together wherever we are. May we be open to your spirit. Allow us to put down those things which worry us and cause us anxiety. Help us to be filled with that spirit that inspires us to transform and to go out and do the work you've given us to do in the world you love. We ask you to hold in, in your mind those we hold in our hearts. Be with those who need your healing touch. Help be present to those who may be nearing the end of their lives and help us to remember those we love and see no longer. Today, we also come to you asking for you to be continuously present to those who are suffering around the world, those in Turkey and Syria, those in Michigan and beyond, those known only to you. May they know your love today and always. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so as I said, I've not been here for a while, and there's some good stuff that we covered. And so what I'd love to do is kind of do a recap of many of the chapters that we've looked at. Probably, I don't know, gosh, we'll go back to maybe chapter 14, 15. We're going to just do the story stuff, because I want to make sure that we know where the characters fit, how they're related, what their dynamics are, because there are so many different ways you can do a Bible study. You can do theological stuff, you can do historical context stuff. But one of the things I wanna make sure that we are super clear on is just who are the characters and what did they do? Because if you come out of this study this year and you can't actually say who someone was, then we've kind of missed maybe the basics. And so if you're sitting there and I would hope that you would be able to tell me who Absalom is and how he impacted multiple people through the story. If you can, great. And if you can't, don't worry. We're going to do just a few minutes. 
on how certain characters fit with one another because the stories are just so good. So before we jump in, are there any questions over these last few weeks that have been percolating in your mind or perhaps that you've been wondering about? Sure. Okay. It's a great question. So at the end of chapter 19, and we're going to be finishing with that story today, the people of Judah are quarreling with the rest of Israel. And so if you can remember in this period of time, we still have a bit of the identity of the 12 tribes. Saul, somebody's watching me live while I'm talking. That's funny. Um, There we are. The tribes come into the promised land from Egypt. You know, Joshua leads them in. Then they set up camps in different parts of Israel. They really are not a unified country. We get the period of the judges, but the judges are all yoked to one particular tribe. And it's not a one-to-one of the story, but essentially every single judge, and we discussed a few of them, they are really tied to a particular tribe. When Saul comes on the scene as the first king, Saul tries to unify all of the tribes, doesn't really make it happen. And Saul's paranoia about David is rooted in part by his inability to unify the tribes. David, as a military leader, at the first part of his kingship, really does bring all the tribes under one one umbrella. However, it takes time, generations of time, for tribalism, and I use that word loosely, but where the tribes would lose their individual identities and all begin to understand themselves as Israelites. As we've noted, this story is being written centuries after the action that it describes. And so there are certain moments, and you found one of them, where the differentiation between a particular tribe, say the Judahites, and all of Israel is something of historic interest because based on the exile and the post-exile and certainly after the diaspora, and I believe we've discussed this in here before, but essentially if you fast forward to the first century, Jesus's ministry comes and goes. And then in 70, Jerusalem is sacked by Rome because Jerusalem has just been too annoying to the Roman Empire. And they take all the Israelites and they spread them all over the Roman Empire. Those pockets of Israelites, of Jewish people, stay where they are for hundreds and hundreds of years. When we get to the 20th century, and much of what happens, particularly in the Holocaust, the way in which Jewish communities had separate identities and were able to be aggressed upon, they they were not able to defend themselves, is not because the Jews were somehow unable to relate to one another. They had been planted in random places all over Central, Eastern Europe, the Middle East, and over hundreds and hundreds of years, their identities shifted away from being particular tribes to actually being particular pockets of Jewish 
people. I mean, the genetic lines actually began to diverge because they were separated from one another for so long. And so when we get groups like, you all likely know things like the Ashkenazi Jews, those are a particular line of Jews from Central Europe. Those Central European Jews became Central European Jews when essentially the Roman Empire moved them all over the place. When the writers of this section are referencing back to the time of David, they're playing with the idea of tribes being genuinely different in a way that post-exile they really weren't. So where you see Judahites and other Israelites, one of the things to note is that is likely as important to understand as northern and southern kingdom of Israel as it is actual separation of tribes. So essentially the Judahites at the end of chapter 19 are part of David's team because the kingdom of Judah are the ones who are writing this story. And so they're the ones that went into exile in Babylon. They're the ones that came out of exile after Persia took over Babylon. They're the ones that rebuilt the second temple. And so they're the ones writing the story. And so when they say the Judahites favored David, but not the rest of Israel, that's a bit self-serving because then those who trace their lineage through the Judahites can claim some kind of greater authority or greater rightness because they stuck with David, who was ultimately God's chosen. And then, of course, you get to Solomon and, and on and on. Plus, when we read this, there's another dynamic because Jesus comes from the line of Judah. And so David is a Judahite. Jesus then is a Judahite. We see in Matthew and Luke, the lineage of Judah is described in two different ways. The lineage of Judah is essentially both Mary and Joseph, even though I'm not entirely sure why Joseph is, you know, if Jesus was immaculate conception, does Joseph's genealogy kind of matter? I don't know, it doesn't matter, whatever. Um, details. So both Mary and Joseph are described as Judahites as well. And so as this story's being written, you know, history is written by the victor. So the Judahites are telling a story that really is good for them. And that's one of those moments that's sort of lifted up. Is it literally the tribe of Judah only? Maybe, maybe not. David definitely had extended support. And so the idea that at that point, only one of the 12 tribes would have actually supported David seems less likely, but it makes for a better story because of its historic impact on the ones who are writing it. Other questions? I did have one question while you're thinking. John asked about going back to Bathsheba and David and their children. When Solomon was born, Solomon was named Jedediah. That was a secondary name. And so one of the questions was just, where did that come from? And why was he just not Solomon? He was Solomon, but then the prophet named him Jedediah as a secondary blessing name. 
and this is a tradition in a lot of different groups. Um, those of you who may have come out of an Orthodox or a Catholic background know that it's very common for Orthodox and Catholics upon confirmation to adopt a saint name that doesn't actually become your new name, but it is sort of part of your religious naming. And that's all Jedediah is, is kind of a blessing name, not his goes-by name. That remains Solomon. So that was relatively kind of simple answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the facial expressions. You're like, what? Um, <laughs> all right, any other questions before we just hit the story? Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to tell the story over these last few chapters, just as a recap. But specifically, I want to make sure we know how people relate to each other. Because what is happening here is totally like English royal family infighting. It's Game of Thrones style infight. It's great. And if you miss the dynamics of the way that everyone is actually related to each other, then it is kind of just a technical story and you don't get all the juice that you get when you realize that like it's cousin versus cousin and it's, you know, half sibling versus it's awesome. And so here we go. We're going to start with Amnon. Amnon is one of David's sons. Now we have a lot of children. David has a lot of children and there are a few people who matter more than others. And so I'm going to start writing here so that we can actually trace the tree as much as possible. So David, and I hope that I think the people online can see this, so we'll see. If you all need me to move it around, let me know. So David has a couple wives that I guess matter for these purposes. We have Macaw, and we have Ahinoam. And now we're going to start to explain how people relate. So, Macaw has two kids that we care about right here, and that's Absalom and Tamar. Now, Ahinoam has one we care mostly about, and that's Amnon. All right, so, half-siblings, okay? Amnon takes a shine to Tamar and goes to try to seduce her. She refuses the seduction, and then Amnon rapes Tamar. Remember all this? Yes? So Absalom and David, but particularly Absalom, gets mad that Amnon has violated Tamar. Because in the culture, obviously, we have, you must be a virgin to be married. And so if you have been violated, then you don't actually get the option of being married properly so that you can have the right kind of life. And so essentially Tamar's kind of set on a particular path that makes her incredibly vulnerable and she will never be able to bear children. And we've talked in here multiple times about how the highest good of any Jew is to have kids. And so if Tamar cannot get married, she cannot then have children. She cannot fulfill really the highest purpose of her life. So Tamar's brother Absalom gets mad. And two years later, as Absalom is out shearing sheep, he invites 
David and all of David's sons over for, you know, a dinner party. He's going to have a party. He wants all his half brothers to come on over. David doesn't want to come, but he sends a blessing. You know, he's like, thanks so much for the invite. I'm busy. And so all the sons go over to Absalom's house. Absalom's feast must have been a rip-roaring party because a bunch of people get drunk, including Amnon. When Amnon is drunk, Absalom takes his revenge on his full sister by killing his half-brother. Okay, we got all that? Yes. That's good stuff, y'all. Okay. So, we have here, this is a rape, and then here, this is a killing. All right, so that family tree is a hot mess. Now, interestingly, we've got, I don't think I can write lower than this point, so I'm gonna flip the chart. We've got other people here who relate to these as well. So what I'm gonna do is, these are David's wives. So we need a moment with David's sisters. Okay, so we've got David, and now David, has two sisters that we are concerned about. The first one is Zeruah. I know, don't you love these names? I love them. Love them. This one's easy. Abigail, Abby, over here. Yeah. Okay. Zeruah has three sons that we care about. Let's see if I can write these well enough. We've got Abishai. <laughs> Azahel, and then the one you really know, Joab. So remember Joab and Abishai, Asahel, do you remember Asahel was killed um, by, in battle, and so Joab goes and kills the guy who killed Abishai, which is, doesn't really matter. Abishai and Joab are the ones who are alive in this part of the story. And over here, Abigail, has a son that we need to know of, Amasa. And so, all these people are first cousins. If we go back to David's sons, Absalom is the one who tries to usurp David and claim kingship. The person who, who Absalom taps as being his army commander is David's nephew, Amasa. When Absalom loses out on his attempt to usurp, Amasa is brought back into David's court, but Joab, who had been David's commander, doesn't like that. And we're going to get to that story in one moment. So I just want to make sure that we are clear about these cousins. So let's jump back. One of my favorite parts really of the Bible, I think the story is fantastic, is the whole drama about Absalom trying to usurp the throne. And so we have to acknowledge that Absalom was apparently really good looking. Did you all talk about this? He was like super excellent looking and he had beautiful hair. There are multiple times in the scripture where it talks about his beautiful big curly hair. And so I can only imagine it was sort of like half Afro, you know, where it's got like all the big curls and it was everywhere because it had to be big enough to get stuck in the tree. So we're going to get to that. So, so Absalom's sexy and he begins to walk around over the course of years. 
kind of just being sexy and beginning to become more and more popular. So as Absalom becomes more and more popular, Absalom dupes himself into thinking that he can usurp David as king. Now, David is God's anointed, so we kind of know as we're reading along here what should happen. If God's with David, then Absalom's not going to be successful. But what we have is this beautiful story of David, and this is what gets to David's character. Absalom challenges David to the throne. What would typically happen there is you've got father and son would battle it out. David doesn't want to fight his son. David, in a sense, would rather lose his throne than fight his son for it. And so David evacuates the city. David takes all his people, except 10 concubines, out of the city. Absalom comes in with his cousin as his, as his commander, and he reclaims the city after David takes off. His advisors advise him to essentially claim David's authority by sleeping with David's concubines, the 10 that were left behind. That's good. I mean, I hope you are enjoying this. It's not so. And so Absalom then tries to, you know, I guess like legitimately plant his seed here and like claim his spot by taking his father's concubines and so, sort of, I mean, really quite claiming it. So Absalom is there trying to claim that throne. At the same time, as David's, if we can just imagine, David's entire royal family is in chaos because David's evacuated, he's taken these people over here, you've got Absalom over here, David's nephew is helping with an ulterior group of people in the army. And so as all of this mess is happening, remember, Saul's family still exists. And so Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth, hold on, Mephibosheth, sorry, Mephibosheth, whatever. Um, Mephibosheth still exists. Now, if you remember, like four, five, six weeks ago, we talked about how when David became king, he looked out and he realized there are still people who are supportive of Saul and also related to Saul. Jonathan's sons, Mephibosheth, David loved Jonathan, but David also understood that Jonathan's son had a claim to Saul's throne. And so do you remember David brought Mephibosheth in and essentially sweet-talked him and gave him a bunch of land as a means of uh, paying him off, essentially, to let David keep the throne. If Mephibosheth had a good life, then he was less likely to try and challenge David for the throne. Well, he's over there on his land, years later, decade plus later, watching all of this craziness happen with David's family. And he thinks, aha, I've got a chance to get the throne back. And so Mephibosheth tries to also challenge David for the throne. So David's got these two people on both sides trying to claim the throne away from him. And we get this wonderful moment where Mephibosheth has a person who essentially defects to David and says, hey, he's planning to do this stuff. And so David gives, Ziba is his name, David gives Ziba Mephibosheth's estate so that essentially Mephibosheth cannot mount an attack on David because if you don't have the money to pay the army, the army's not gonna fight for you. 
It's, not, I guess it's not unlike today, but we really do, it, we can romanticize this a little too much into thinking that these thousands of people who form an army are completely for the person they're fighting for. Maybe, but really, they're getting paid. And so, although they might like David, or they might like Mephibosheth, or they might like Absalom, they only like them insofar as when they pay them. And so, if Mephibosheth's land gets taken away, he ultimately doesn't have the money to pay an army to mount an attack on David. Does that all make sense? So, he's kind of not able to do a whole lot. Absalom, back to Absalom, Absalom has taken his place in the city, in Jerusalem. But David, David's military leader, Joab, Joab is having none of this. And so David sends Joab to essentially push Absalom out. David doesn't want to hurt Absalom, but David doesn't want Absalom to be king. And so when they go to try and do a sneak attack, on Absalom, Absalom runs. Absalom is on his mule horse. I want to say it's a mule. Um, and as he's running through the forest, his hair gets stuck on branches and he stays and the mule goes. And so he is literally hanging by his hair. That is potentially one of my favorite visuals in the entire Bible. That's ridiculous. I mean, the first time I read this, which I swear to you was like in grad school, the first time I'm really reading this story, I'm like, are you kidding me that this is in the Bible? And so I just, I have to read it to you because it's too good not to read out loud. So this is chapter 18, verse nine. You don't even have to look at it. Just enjoy it. So Absalom met the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule. Oh, it was a mule. Absalom was riding on his mule and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. His head caught fast in the oak, and he was left hanging between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. <laughs> a man saw it and told Joab, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. <laughs> Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. I guess it was hard to find a belt. But the man said to Joab, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not have raised my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Atai, it's a different person, saying, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. Pause. So did you hear what just happened? A guy sees Absalom hanging from the tree, which has got to be a wonderful sight. Goes and tells Joab and actually reiterates David told Joab not to hurt Absalom. David doesn't want to hurt his kids, but he also doesn't want his kids to hurt him. And so he's trying to find this middle way. Push Absalom out. Don't hurt him, but at least get him out. Joab, however, if we think of Joab, Joab's like David's fixer. Joab is sort of David's getting dirty guy. I mean, if you almost imagine it's like Godfather style, where David's like, no, really don't hurt anybody. And Joab's like, no, we, we gotta take care of business. So Joab is the TCB of this relationship. And so Joab rushes over, verse 13, and says, 
On the other hand, if I had had debt, blah, blah, blah. Job said, I will not waste time like this with you. <laughs> I love He's like, forget it. I'll do it myself. And he took three spears in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And then ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Absalom is very dead. And Joab does this against David's wishes. And what is interesting here is, look at, look at the family. He's his first cousin. This is not just an army commander and some random other person. This is all in the family. And so you've got one of David's sons trying to usurp his father. You've got one of his son's cousins, David's nephew, who is commanding the army, who finds his cousin, who has tried to usurp his uncle, hanging from a tree and kills him to just end the whole thing. That's juicy stuff. And so that is all the sort of stuff I wanted to go over today to make sure that we had that the relationship of the family all very clear. We're not done yet because now that Absalom is dead, the family kind of comes back together, sort of, but it doesn't work out for everybody. So any questions up to this point between some of David's kids, these nephews who are all fighting in different ways for different people as time progresses, clarity that would be helpful. Yes. yes. What are concubines? What are concubines? Thank you. So for everyone who is unclear, um, a concubine is essentially not a wife, but a woman who would also bear children for the man involved. And so these are, it's a harem, kind of, um, but not wives, just extra baby bearers. Mistresses. <laughs> not even mistresses, because they, they're not secret. Um, they live over there. So what would happen with kings at this time is, not kings at this time, kings at any time, is you just, the more kids you have, the more likely your line is to continue. And so you, might, you may only have one or two or three wives, because... Well, because wives take more energy. Um, I mean, honestly, they're more expensive. They take more time. They require more authority and presence. And I mean, you can, that, there's just only so much. And so, but one woman can only have so many children. And so rather than waiting to only have one children per year at most, Kings would gather a whole bunch of ladies to just have more children. Solomon, like, was excellent at this. Um, so, I mean, David had a little, but Solomon had a lot. And so we'll get to that with Solomon. So David had these concubines. And as we see, ultimately in the story, I wasn't going to really address it, but there is a section where it says, David essentially took his concubines and gave them a house. And they could retire there. And the Hebrew word actually most closely relates to the word pension in English. So David kind of set them up in a house in retirement with a pension. 
And so essentially, they're fine. They're over there. They're being taken care of. They're, they can eat. They are secure. They're fine. But David has no relationship with them versus, say, a wife where David would actually be relating to her on a human level. They, they essentially are just there for babies. So not really mistress because everybody knows they're right there. So there's no secret. It's not like the wives didn't realize what was happening. Um, but that's why there's so many half children. If you were to just Google David's children, what you would get is it be broken down by woman. And so there are a lot of there, but Solomon's is like impossible. Um, David only has what, like 18 kids or something like that. Solomon's got many more. So we'll get to that. Other questions? Okay. David begins to mourn Absalom. And that really ticks Joab off because Absalom tried to usurp David's throne, probably would have tried to kill David. And as Joab has proven, Joab is going to protect David's interest at all costs, even if that means doing the thing David says not to do. And so Joab goes to David when he's mourning and says, excuse me, you are in your tent mourning your son who tried to overthrow you. And all of the people, all of your men, all of your army are watching you mourn. They think they're supposed to mourn too, but they're supposed to mourn this guy who led an army against us. That doesn't make any sense. And David reluctantly agrees that that doesn't really make any sense. And so he kind of ends the mourning period and begins to transition back to Jerusalem as the king, which gets to your question. As David begins to reclaim control, David is trying to figure out how to clean up all the drama that the past few years had created. And that's because there are people around. So back to the chart, there are people like his nephew, Amasa. He sided with Absalom. Well, now Absalom's dead. Amasa's still here. Amasa obviously has some kind of military skill. And so what is it that David's supposed to do to try and bring the family back together? This gets at David's character, which is very important. David doesn't just execute all the people who tried to usurp him. David tries to go through a process of forgiveness, raising people back up, getting them to be in line again for, to support him. Well, people like Joab and Abishai, although the scripture is not super clear on this, I'm going to go with the interpretation that they think David's stupid. And they think David is absolutely naive to think that people like Amasa are going to now just support David because Absalom's dead. Maybe not likely. And so Joab and Abishai that have been loyal to David this entire time are going to now clean up the problem. And so a couple things happen. Mephibosheth comes back and apologizes to David. So very sorry that he had done all these things. David, in his largesse, decides that although Ziba has Mephibosheth's estate at this point, he'll split it and let Ziba keep half and let Mephibosheth keep half. Well, Mephibosheth, for his credit, says, no, I don't need any of it. Like, essentially, I lost that. And so Ziba can keep it. And Mephibosheth just celebrates David's grace and forgiveness and 
we kind of don't hear anything else from him. So my guess is he just happily took his place in the court and stopped causing trouble. Now, we're going to get to Sheba's Rebellion, which is actually what was assigned for today. And so before we jump to Sheba's Rebellion, this is all, I think, been recapped. And so any questions or clarity about how we get to now the rebellion that Joab puts down? More rebellion. Good. Let's turn to chapter 20. Chapter 20 pivots back into David as king. So we've gone through all the mess of David losing and moving and evacuating, and now David has come back. And as we noted, the whole bringing David back to power at the end of chapter 19 happens in a, it still happens kind of in a messy way. The kingdom is really uh, disjointed right now. Tribes aren't entirely sure who they can trust. They're, I guess David's still king, but they're not absolutely clear. So we get at the end of chapter 19 that the Judahites are fully behind David. They essentially bring David back to Jerusalem, reestablish him as king in the city. But they're only one of the 12 tribes. And the other tribes are sort of just not doing anything. Saying they support David might be a little too generous. Instead, it's probably more accurate to say they just can't do anything else at the time. And so now we get to a rebellion of some of those tribes, again, challenging David's authority. So look, look at chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 1. Now a scoundrel named Sheba, son of Bichri, a Benjaminite, happened to be there around he sounded the trumpet and cried out, We have no portion in David, no share in the son of Jesse. Everyone to your tents, O Israel. So all the people of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, son of Bichri. But the people of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And so we reiterate here that, we're going to pause there. We reiterate here that Judah is being faithful to David. Is it 100% historic? that Judah was the only tribe that did that? Probably not. I mean, to just to be honest, David has done so much at this point in his life. He has overcome so many trials. He has triumphed over so many people challenging him. And he continues to have the faith of what appears to be the strongest of all of the different armed units in the country to think that only one tribe would have supported David at this point. Doubtful. But are there rebels somewhere else? Yes. And so this is one of those moments where the Judahites writing this story are kind of just making themselves feel good. Plus, fast forward beyond the writing of this story, and you get a natural sort of class system within Israel. If you're of a particular tribe, you have, in a sense, been more faithful over time than other tribes. Plus, post-exile, you've all likely heard of the 10 lost tribes of Israel. 
they are the tribes that were part of the northern kingdom, Judah being the tribe in the southern kingdom. And so being identified as anything but a Judahite and a Levite, essentially, are not really helpful anymore when this story is being written. That's why we kind of get Judah and everybody else. So David, as he's trying to clean up all this stuff, remember he had put his concubines over there, given them a pension. He begins to reestablish his army. And we see that David speaks with Amasa, his nephew, to summon all of the Judah troops and try to put down Sheba's rebellion. Well, shockingly, Amasa, remember who had been helpful to Absalom, just drags his feet and doesn't actually get any of this done. So then David therefore tells Abishai to do the same thing and to go after Sheba and to try and put down that rebellion. So Amasa, who is kind of doing that, meets Abishai and Joab at Gibeon. And Amasa goes to meet Joab and Abishai, and he is surprised. Let's look at chapter 20, verse 4. So the king says to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed, delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. So David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, or he will find fortified cities for himself and escape from us. Now, before we get to this, a note. Why not Joab? It's a question. Joab's been the commander of the army all this time. Why is it that first David goes to Amasa, Amasa kind of drags his feet, and then David goes to Abishai? Why is it... Bingo. Thank you. Joab's been the guy doing all the good stuff. But Joab killed Absalom. So Joab's not out. But David already told Joab to do something and he didn't do it. And so David maybe is not so dumb that he's going to ask Joab to do something again and expect Joab will do it. Eh, I don't know. But that's a perfectly good interpretation. So he starts with Amasa. That, I'm not entirely sure why that happens. And then we get to Abishai. But Abishai and Joab are still together. They're still kind of leading the army together. So in verse 7, even though David has asked about Abishai, verse 7 says, Joab's men. So yeah, Abishai might be the one in charge right now, but they're still Joab's guys. So verse 7, Joab's men went out after him along with a bunch of people. And they went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. Verse 8. When they were at the large stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword and its sheath fastened at his waist. As he went forward, it fell out. Oops, it fell out. Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him, but Amasa did not notice the sword in Joab's hand. Joab struck him in the belly so that his entrails poured out onto the ground, and he died. He did not strike a second blow. Joab took care of that problem. So here we have Joab taking his last act to put down Absalom's rebellion. Absalom died because Absalom challenged David. Amasa died because Amasa supported Absalom. Even though David twice 
did not want them to die. Joab had none of that. And so Joab, I mean, this is funny. As Joab went forward, it fell out. I mean, who writes that way? It really is just like, oh, oops, sorry, Masa. Oops, oh, oops. I mean, it's just, it, it's really quite funny. So here we have Joab cleaning up David's mess once and for all. So we continue on. The army pursues Sheba. They meet Sheba at Abel, a stronghold of Sheba's rebellion. So at this point, it implies, the story implies that Sheba has amassed some kind of rebel force that's decent, and they've done so at Abel. A wise woman of the city, all we know is a wise woman of the city, sees that her city is about to be flattened. You've essentially got a rebellion in Abel, and you've got David's army, led by Joab and Abishai, coming to Abel to put down the rebellion. So what gets destroyed? The city. And so a wise woman of that city tries to figure out how to prevent this from happening. So let's keep on with chapter 20. I love this woman. Here we go. Chapter 20, verse 14. Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him inside. So now he's in the city. Joab's forces came and besieged him in Abel. They threw up a siege ramp against the city, and it stood against the rampart. Joab's forces were battering the wall to break it down. Then a wise woman called from the city. So you imagine he is trying to break down the walls of the city. This woman is probably like up on the wall, like, hey, hey, you know, they're trying to like, boom, boom. It's like, hey, hey. Okay, so wise woman call from the city. Listen, listen. I love that. Listen, hey, listen. Tell Joab, come here, I want to speak to you. So Joab came near her, and the woman said, are you Joab? Yes, I am. And she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I'm listening. She said, they used to say in old days, let them inquire at Abel so they would settle a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel, and you seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of our God? And Joab answered, far be it for me, far be it, that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not the case. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim, called Sheba, son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone, and I will withdraw from the city. The woman said to Joab, his head shall be thrown over the wall to you. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha! Then the woman went to all the people with her wise plan. And they cut off the head of Sheba, son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, and all went to their homes, while Joab returned to Jerusalem and to the king. That woman took care of business. So, I mean, it is funny because I imagine in this exchange, Joab, who is, he is a businessman. I mean, he sees what needs to be done. He does it. And so even though David's like, no, please don't hurt my son. Joab's like, okay. And then he brings in the army. And David's like, you should go put down the rebellion. And I can just see Joab off the side of the room thinking, not a chance. And so as they're out moving along, they're like, hey, Amasa, hey, come over here. Oops, sorry. Okay, so then Joab's there trying to put down this rebellion at the city. And a woman says, hey, what do I need to do to get you to stop and not destroy my city? And Joab's like, hmm. Give me Sheba's head. 
And the woman says, give me a minute. And so, climbs down the wall, tells her friends, they somehow dupe Sheba, cut his head off, and she's like, here you go, will you leave the city now? He's like, done. And so, how great is that? I want to make a note, this is in the Bible, okay? Yeah. We don't often hear this read in church on Sunday mornings. This is one of those sections where whoever set up the lectionary, they like skipped over this part. But it's important for you to know this stuff is here. I mean, the Bible is often romanticized and made uber theological and all the other stuff. There are portions of scripture that are just terrible in the best way. It's like delicious romance novels or like really terrible miniseries on royal infighting. I mean, nothing's new under the sun. So when we look around today and we wonder why people can't just be good to each other, it's been the whole time. I mean, a holy book. This is the story in a holy book. And it will be interesting for us to, or for you to play with the idea why? Why does this get put in the Bible? There's so many things that never made it into the Bible. What really is the purpose behind this story? So what I would submit to you is that the real purpose behind this story is not just entertaining stories. They are. It's actually to show the profound difference that David is versus all these other people. We read stories about people like Joab and Amasa and Absalom, and you've got Amnon and come over here to this woman in Abel. Everyone appears around David to be normal or terrible or so very human. They get messy. They get their hands dirty. They see a thing that needs to happen. They go and do it. And all the while, David is standing next to them, really saying, don't do that thing. I mean, David literally evacuates the capital city that he established in order to not have to fight his own son. That's the kind of character of David. It's easy for us to only take David's interactions with people like, say, Bathsheba, and begin to question his integrity, begin to question his character, which is a perfectly appropriate thing to do so long as we don't stop there. And instead, we keep going, and we try to create an entire full, dynamic, rich, and deep picture of this person. David is everything. He's lustful and he is apologetic. He is a fighter and he is kind. He is extremely strong in the face of adversity and he absolutely retreats. He does it all. And so the dynamics of David are important for us to really understand, to try our best to understand because as I've noted, next year, I mean, I think everyone knows this, or most of you know this, we'll be spending next year looking at the Gospel of John. And when we look at the Gospel of John, we're going to be totally in on who Jesus is as Christ. 
Not Jesus as rabbi, not Jesus as miracle worker, but Jesus as Christ. John is the one gospel that goes into the Christness of Jesus of Nazareth. To understand where the Christ actually is in Jesus, we must get a grasp on the dynamic dimensions of both Moses and David. That's really why we are doing this this year. And so I love all these stories, just like anyone else. But I don't want us to stop there. Because all the while, David is doing something unique. David's not acting like all the other people around him. It would be so easy for him to do that. But he doesn't. And so when we study these scripture passages, it's important for us to lift David up and try to differentiate him and his character, not just because he's an interesting literary character, although he is, but because when people experience Jesus in the first century in real life, they begin to ask who he is. And the answer they come to is an extension of Moses and Elijah and David, but something even more. And for Jews in the first century, that will make a lot more sense to Americans in the 21st century unless we spend some time vetting and rolling around in the character of these people that we probably don't know very well. And so with all of that said, we're close to the end. Any questions or follow-ups about the way in which these actions and the dynamics of the story may impact David? Or do you just simply want clarity on familiar relationships or any of that stuff? Or actually a question about anything? Yes, sir. So in verse 24, says uh, the pattern is in charge of forced labor. There's also a pattern of slavery on the prisons. Not really brought out very much, but it seems like it's always there. Slavery is always there? Yeah. Well, I mean, slavery is everywhere in the Bible. So it's... Do you... I can say something to that? Or do you have a specific question? Or is it just an observation? I just, I, I just sort of wonder, after Jews and slaves, now they're enslaving people, and it continues on, right? Like other civilizations do exactly the same thing. It just seems like it's this dark thing that humanity has had since time and time. Oh, that slavery is just some something that we've been doing forever. So, correct. Um, <laughs> it's interesting that you bring up that. <clears throat> The Jewish people, well, actually, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. Coming out of Egypt and into the Promised Land, it sure would make sense that they would not then enslave other people. That's, that's a wonderfully 21st century Western way of reading this story. What happens over time is that anyone who gets power, authority, wealth needs to maintain that power and authority and wealth. And they can't possibly do it alone. And so you've got two options. You either pay people to support you in your power and authority and wealth, or you save the money and you make the people who can't tell you no 
do it for free. And so you can look at pretty much any culture, any civilization, anywhere, and say and see that that kind of thing has happened. What is important for us as Americans to understand is that it wasn't really until America that slaves were imported. That's one of the big differentiators of American slavery versus all other kinds of slavery all over the world. And that's not 100%, but when it comes to the scale of American slavery, it's not just like slavery was everywhere else, which makes it quite hard. Because if you look at other big cultures where people were essentially enslaved, um, I mean, you've got recent history. So, I mean, you've got the caste system in India is a good example of that. Plus, you've got that all over the place in many different Asian countries and African countries. The difference was much more about class than about race. And so in one particular racial cultural group of people, you actually do have a class structure system where some people were considered lower class than others. In Israel, that could be understood in tribal ways, where one tribe was just stronger than another tribe. Now they're all Semitic peoples, they're all Israelites, but you've got these Israelites over there weaker than those Israelites over there. And so the slaves were essentially the same people, the same culture, the same racial group as the people who were enslaving them. They just happened to be a weaker class. We see this as kind of the feudal system. Look all, all over Europe. We, we put a nice word on it, feudal, but it was basically slavery. Um, it was not literally the exact same, but it was so close where people could not essentially feed themselves without working for the landowner. And so you get one wealthy family that owned all the land and then dozens and dozens of smaller families who had no land themselves, who would work a portion of the wealthy person's land, keep a little bit of the food, give most of it to the wealthy person to keep their wealth up. That's very, very close to what most of us would deem slavery, even though it's not literally to the letter the same. And so I simply want us to see that there was, there's biblical precedent all throughout scripture for slavery. And it was used for centuries to defend, right, I mean, it still is in many parts of the world, we need to be sophisticated enough to understand why, even though something may have been done throughout all of human history, we may choose no longer to do that. And there is nothing unfaithful about losing a portion of our history. In fact, I think that particularly as Anglican Christians, it's the best way to be Anglican is to acknowledge that God is still revealing truth. It's not locked in time. And if we have figured out a new truth, then we can actually live better in the future. I've probably said this to you here before, but one of my favorite quotes is Maya Angelou, which is, 
do the best you can until you learn better and then do better. And so part of this is don't also need to turn around necessarily and slay all the people who hundreds of years ago did wrong stuff. But don't keep doing the wrong stuff now. That we can acknowledge that was not as good as we wish to be. Let's be as good as we wish to be moving forward. And there's some grace in that way of seeing the world that I think can be very helpful to us. That's what I'm saying. So the comment is, there was benefit to the system at the time, because the more people you have united, the stronger you can be. We can look at that and say, true, that if you were to give someone the option of being within the feudal system or being left to their own devices, being left to their own devices made them vulnerable and they would have probably been taken over and perhaps their life would have been even worse. I would just want us to make sure we hold intention that your life could be bad or really bad. Neither life is good. And so that yes and we can do better than having your only two choices be bad and really bad. And so that's where the dynamic comes is you have to support an economic structure and slavery is a whole lot cheaper. And so then when you say no to that, the complexities of the economic structure are hard and we live it. We live with that complexity right now, but it's better to try to deal with the complexity and the demands than it is to go to slide back into a structure that really dehumanizes other people. All right. That was more than you bargained for. <laughs> Happy Wednesday. I'll see you next week.